Please stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zara by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amibadad, and Amibadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of uh, Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you as we begin this Advent season uh, for kids or those who are kids at heart. This is the season where we have open flame in service every week. So enjoy the spectacle uh, that comes with that. We are starting an Advent series between now and Christmas that I'm calling The Return of the King. We're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, the long-awaited return of God, not just as friend, not just as comforter, but actually as king of his people in the person of Jesus, which scripture in the Old Testament calls the Messiah, and here the Greek word for that is Christ or anointed one. It was a term for king. Uh, The people, as Rebecca and Gordon had alluded to, had been waiting a long time. They had been leaderless. They had lived as a conquered people for centuries, passed on from one power to another, not controlling their own destiny for most of their history for hundreds of years. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting for something to change. I think there are many ways that each of us are in the same boat. We're waiting a long time for something in others, in our family, in our friendships, in ourselves, in the world around us to change. And those are stubborn problems and they don't change quickly. 
We're waiting in many ways for a power to come into our lives, to our relationships, to ourselves and do what we just can't do on our own. What we've been trying to do very clearly for years and years, but just hasn't been working. We're waiting for something to come and make real change for us. We find ourselves in the exact same position that the people were in thousands of years ago. And according to the scriptures, the power for remaking ourselves, for bringing change into our world is the return of God as king for his people. To live with them, to free them from all that oppresses them and plagues them, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. Matthew writes to tell the whole world about the long-awaited hope of God coming to do just that, to have the return of the king in Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. And so this first week, as we look at the return of the king coming to bring this hope to a people waiting in darkness, we're going to look at the line of the king, or what you might say is the origin, the family history of the king. Where does he come from? What does he look like? What does scripture tell us about him? And what does that relationship tell us about ourselves and how God relates to us? To answer many of those questions. I want to look at three things this morning, which is first the focus of the line. What's it talking about? Second, the nature of the line. What's it made up of? And finally, the king who steps into the line. So the focus, the nature, and the king who steps into the line. But before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's ask God to enter in with us here. Now we take a moment just to breathe. And to remember that you have breathed life into us in the beginning and that your word is a breath of life for our souls. So as we come to pause before you now and to take in your word, would you breathe life into our souls, our weary, our hungry, our thirsty, our perhaps lonely, angry, frustrated, disappointed souls? Would you come now and be that life that renews us, that resurrects us, that raises us up. I pray that you would be in some way, shape, or form new to us this morning, that we would see you in a new light, that we would experience you to a new degree, that we would know your commitment to us in a way that we haven't known before. So I pray that you would do that for my friends this morning, that you would be present in this way by your grace and by your power. In your name we pray, amen. We'll begin with uh, the focus of the line, and we will be going back through the text a little bit this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along. But we're going to look at how Matthew walks us through the history, the genealogy of Jesus coming as the king. Uh, Matthew tells a very specific stylized genealogy of Jesus's history. He highlights certain parts of Jesus's family line, and he skips completely over others. Uh, It's not very clearly a literal 14 generations for each of these things. Matthew's taking a different approach. If we remember, we were just in the book of Exodus, if you're with us. Israel was in captivity for 400 some years. That's a long time. And yet you have sweeping sections here from Abraham all the way to David counted as 14 generations. Matthew's not trying to tell you just exactly what a census would tell you of who was the father of who and just give you sort of curiosity information. 
He seems focused not just on passing that along to you, but reflecting on the theological significance of something that's embedded in the way that he's talking about these things. It seems that Matthew is focusing differently from the other gospels on the king, on kingship. He's tracing the line from God's promise to make Abraham a great nation. He traces that line in verses two through five to the crowning of that great nation. Every great nation has a great ruler. And that ruler for Israel was David, a king after God's own heart, Scripture says, verse 6. And then from that long-awaited king for that people to the downfall of that line and the exile and deportation to Babylon, traced through verses 6 and 11. And finally, from the downfall back up to the return of the king all the way through verse 16. So the focus of Matthew's history is on the line of the king from the promise to have a nation, a king for the nation, the fall of that nation, and the return of a king for those people in the person of Jesus the Christ. We will talk more about that, but I want to talk first about how this focus on the king brings us to see the nature of this line as something very surprising. It's not something we would expect and it's not something that you would make up to talk about this great king that would come. When we look more closely at each of the names that are involved here, and we won't get to all of them, but many of them, when you look more closely at them, you just see how unlikely it is that this whole line would be the one that this great king who would bring power and restoration for all people, that he would come from that line, that he would be a complete and transforming power is just so unlikely as to be shocking when we look at who these people are. It seems painfully unlikely the way that Matthew lays it out here. And so I want us to look and moving quickly here into our second point at the nature of this line of people that the king would come from. When we look at it, it just seems crazy that anything good would come out of this. There are certainly highlights, but there are a lot of painful moments that Matthew does not skip over. Abraham, think of the story of Abraham. It says that Abraham in Hebrews was as good as dead. He was beyond the point of being able to conceive naturally he and his wife together. And yet God makes a promise in that point when he was as good as dead to make him in his vast old age, a massive people that would outnumber the stars. He meets Abraham in a period of inability, and yet Abraham, for all the many ways that he has faith, is often at times not willing to wait for God's promises. He's not courageous enough to stand up for his wife and instead is often fearful for his own life and lets his wife be taken away at times. He is not, for many ways, a man of courage. Isaac the child that actually comes of God's gracious promises despite Abraham's bumbling efforts to do it himself is a man who plays favorites with his children in a way that divides his family. Jacob, the first son, I'm sorry, the the second son uh, of Isaac, deceives his father and his brother many times, and he ignores his first wife completely almost. Judah, the fourth son, not even the first son, and in that time the first son was important, The fourth son, as if you kids have Kevin DeYoung's biggest story, children's Bible, says, quote, Judah does such dumb stuff, we don't even want to talk about it. He is painfully immoral and powerfully insensitive to his family's needs. Tamar is stuck in a terrible position under Judah's family and makes a tragic choice of deceit 
and painfully incest that ironically reveals that Judah is even worse than we knew him only a few words before. Rahab was a prostitute among a people who didn't know God at all. David abuses his power as king, murders a man so that he can cover up the sexual assault that he committed against that man's wife. And she becomes the father of Solomon, the great and wise king. And yet Solomon, born of that sinful act of David assaulting someone else, is given wisdom, and yet that wisdom does not lead to the end of his life. He practices sexual and marital foolishness at a ridiculous, unmatched level. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, oppressed the people so badly that the kingdom broke, and this is right after the kingdom's height. Manasseh is probably the worst king that Judah ever had. He carries on what Ahaz did, which was sacrificing his own children to false gods. These are not the best people. They are not even close to the best people. They are often the worst people. And there is such a deep slide of the king's line into legitimate evil that even for the bright spots, being conquered and deported is the only fitting remedy that God has to wake them up to how far they have wandered away from who he has called them to be. There is maybe one bright spot in this line after that in the deportation Zerubbabel helps rebuild the temple. But this section is largely full of names that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture, which means that their stories are somewhat, except for this connection, unexceptional, unremarkable. Their names, in fact, look back to a more remarkable time, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Eleazar, maybe longing for those times but not bringing anything new. If anything, the line seems to have slid from evil and devastation before exile into simple ordinariness, into mediocrity. But brokenness and mediocrity are not the end of the story that Matthew is trying to tell here and getting us to pay attention to these things because the way Matthew describes their brokenness points to something beyond simple brokenness or average mediocrity as the end of the story. How so? Well, Matthew talks about all this sin, disappointment, and mediocrity by talking about three sets of 14 generations. That's what verse 17 talks about there. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The length of each section of these is pictured as the same, even though historically they were not. For all its mess, Abraham's family is pictured as being 14 generations long between him and David. David's line, which is an even bigger mess, is still pictured as 14 generations long from David to the exile. And the line in deportation in its quiet nothingness is pictured as 14 generations from the beginning to the coming of the Christ. Why this equal picture of very different times over varying periods and spans of time, why picture them with the same length? It's clear that Matthew is skipping over people. He knows he's skipping over people. He says Judah and his brothers. He's talking about groups of people by mentioning one or two. He's being selective, and he's talking about this in three equal groups. What is significant about that? Why is Matthew talking about this this way? 
Well, I think one of the things that Matthew is revealing to us through these, these three equal sets is a sameness between each of these eras, between each of these times. Even the most unimpressive segments of the family line are treated with a sameness, an inequality. It seems that Matthew views these three sets or eras of time in the same way. They're equal in character in his mind as he writes these things. No matter the time or the length or the breadth of the evil or unexceptionalness that's there, the people are a mess in the beginning. And that era in his mind is equal to the people being a bigger mess in the middle. And that era is equal in his mind to the people being unexceptional at the end. No matter the circumstances, they all add up to 14 at the turning point of each era. 14 to David, 14 to the exile, 14 to the Christ. The sameness, the three equal sets structure suggests to us that no matter the season, no matter the level of brokenness or the unexceptional, boring normalcy of their lives, God's promises and plan were equally unfazed in each era. That no matter how bad it was between Abraham and David, God's plan was equally unfazed. That no matter how much worse it was between David and the exile, God's plan was equally unfazed. No matter how boring and unexceptional, incapable of rising from its own ashes this line was in the exile, God's plan was equally unfazed. Matthew's showing us that the season, the problem, the person even, has no ability to alter the promises of God. To God, it's as if they are all the same level of challenge. Bad or worse, mediocre or exceptional, from his redemptive, powerful standpoint, these things are all the same. They are just part of his plan that only ever ends at this one point with the coming of the Christ to rule and reign in peace forever for his people no matter how bad or unexceptional the line gets at varying points in its twists and turns. Matthew wants you to see that no matter what, the king is coming to return for his people. It's as if through these three sets, Matthew pictures God as saying, Abraham is a coward. Judah is a terrible lowlife. Rahab was a prostitute. I'm not phased. My king, my Christ, will still come through this broken, unexceptional line. David's a murderer. Manasseh is the worst father and king imaginable. Everyone else is unremarkable. I'm not phased. My king will still come through this line. It's all the same to me. God's determination and plan do not change according to Matthew's structure here when our circumstances or our faithlessness change. His plan, power, love, and grace are unfazed by our brokenness. You can't be too much more messed up than some of these people were. You can't be more historically unexceptional than some of these people were. 
And it doesn't change God's commitment, God's power, God's plan to have all these things come to pass. Where do you need to hear something like that about your story today? Where do you need to know that your current chapter of brokenness or ordinary, unexceptional life is no more a challenge to his promises and grace than any part of your history or any part of any other one that is out there? Where do you need to know that if you've lived like Abraham or Judah, that you've been a coward or you've been a lowlife? Where do you need to know that if you have lived like Rahab or Tamar and made choices that you deeply regret? Where do you need to know that if you've lived like David or Manasseh and you have abused and used? Where do you need to know that where you have a background like Ruth, who is a Moabitess, and that line comes from Lot, who was incestuous with his own children, where you have a habit of brutal self-destruction where you just can't see the right choice and ever take it like Rehoboam? Where do you need to know that it doesn't matter how deep your mistakes, how much of a failure you are, how bad it has been or is for you, that God's grace is completely unfazed by all of it? Christianity is not a clean yourself up and look nice religion. If that's what you think it is, that is not what this is about. That is not these people. That is not this king's line. It is about the messy, broken, unexceptional people having something amazing happen through them, despite all those things, through all those things even. Not setting them aside, not pretending like they didn't happen, but through those things. This is the king that can still restore you right in the middle of your story. And he can because he's not just unfazed by this line, but to get into our third point, he's actually from this line. He's the king that steps into this line. The Christ, as Matthew and the Old Testament say, would not just stand outside this broken line and fix it from afar, he would come from this line. He would step into it. It would be his history, his family, his mess. How do you know that God is unfazed by a storyline like yours? How do you know that he's unfazed by a storyline like this? Because scripture says he steps into a messed up storyline like this. He picks it. You and I might have messed up families. You might have messed up friendships. You might have a messed up work or a neighborhood or whatever it is. Rarely do you choose that mess. Usually the mess finds you. God chooses this mess. He walks towards it. He takes on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ, the anointed one, the king who would come doing so precisely from this crooked, rotted out, charred over stump of a family tree. See, Jesus' coming through this line is meant, like his entire life, to show you there is no bottom that God will not reach to meet you. There is no low point that you can touch that his grace will not find you. There is no distance that you can run away from him that he will say, ah, that was just a little too far. I can't meet you out there. 
He's unfazed by all that because he lives in it. He makes this messy, unexceptional family his family. He comes as the son of David, the abuser, and the one who covers up his abuse of power. He comes as the son of David who is a coward and impatient. You may have skeletons in your closet, none of which you chose, but Jesus chooses these skeletons as his family. Matthew doesn't hide these skeletons. He points them out. He could have skipped over these things. If you're skeptical about trusting the Bible, I want you to pay attention to that. That's not something you do when you're trying to look powerful and polished. When you are creating a narrative and making up a story, if you're making a genealogy trying to pretend that Jesus was something he wasn't, you don't point out all the junk that you don't want people to see. You gloss over these things. You make it pretty. You talk about the nice parts. You don't talk about the unnice parts. You don't point out that Perez is the daughter of Tamar. You don't point out that Jesus is not somehow the son of Joseph. Joseph is just Mary's husband. It's his stepdad. You don't highlight these weird things. You stay away from them if you're making them up. You do this when you make a resume for your job. You don't put the worst parts of your job performance on your resume. You put the best parts. I have accomplished this. I did these things. I am a conqueror of people and projects. Your resume doesn't say, I have made some huge mistakes. And these are all my mistakes. If you'd like to know more, you can contact me. There's extensive pages I can add as addendums. You don't do that. Matthew does that. And he says, oh yeah, and another thing. This is broken. That's broken. This is boring. These people didn't do much. This is what he's doing. You don't do that if you're making this up. Why would you do that? Unless that's the way that it was. What does it say about the trustworthiness of Scripture that it doesn't hide the messiness from you? If you want to know if you can trust this, look at how it talks about the mess in people's lives. Not just in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The mess in the church is always there. The mess in the church is here and it can be here and we can talk about these things because we are not meant to hide them. Matthew says that this king came for those things, not to hide from them. His resume, his family history is full of this junk. And more to the point, Jesus doesn't hide from it. He enters into it himself because that's how the king would actually bring about the true power and the true change for us and our world by entering into the brokenness, not staying outside of it, not keeping himself from getting dirty, but breaking it from the inside. This is what Jesus does at the cross. Another strange moment of cringeworthy history from God where the stainless and pure deity steps completely into our brokenness as one of us. He gets dirty. He takes on sin. It says he becomes sin for us in Paul's letter. To do battle with the darkness that plagues us. The thousand ways that we are way too much like these people. And to end it for us, the only way that would break its power over us by letting the brokenness of our line, our sin, swallow him whole. He let the full weight of it, that's what you can see him groaning under in the Garden of Gethsemane, the full weight of this starting to dawn on him. That's what he is suffering under on the cross, letting the full weight of it overtake him at the cross, but then plunging it into death with him. He does not escape 
But sin doesn't escape either. He binds himself to it so that when he dies, it dies. And by faith in him, we die with him. And your sin has died there too. Taking away its ownership, its definition of you, away forever. So that you can talk about it, but it doesn't own you anymore. That's what Jesus does to this brokenness. You can talk about the brokenness of Abraham because it doesn't own him anymore in Jesus. You can talk about the brokenness of Judah. You can talk about the brokenness of all those who put their faith in Jesus. And it doesn't own them anymore. The same way, Christians, where do you need to know that if you are in Jesus, your brokenness does not own you anymore? It doesn't define you. It's not who you are. This king makes you something new. He is the turning point. Everything is winding down, it seems, until it gets to Jesus. And then things shift. And all of a sudden, the line that just keeps unraveling starts to do something new. And the same is true with your story. Because Jesus is so committed to his broken family line that he would rather let your fate become his than to let you go entirely. He would take on the unexceptional, the boring, the messy. He would get dirty for them and for you. And in dying for them, he opens up the way for his pure, shining nature to become ours. For his family line to become our family line for his story to become our story. This is the hope of the gospel for broken lives, that the king steps into it to save it, that you can talk about these things because they don't own you anymore. They don't define you anymore. Jesus and his grace defines you. He is the king. Sin is not your king. He is the king. Shame is not your king. He is the king. Guilt and your past are not your king. Jesus is your king. Amen? This is what Christmas and the Incarnation is all about. The king stepping into a messy, broken line so that he would have the final say over what happens to his people. And so in closing to apply this a little, and we'll get into these things more in the coming week, but I want to encourage you as we go out of here today to, to apply the power of this king to you and to them. To you, apply this power to your life story. Again, where do you need to apply the fact that your current chapter of brokenness or ordinary, unexceptional life is no more a challenge to his promises and grace than any other brokenness that you can imagine? Where do you need to know that in here, not just here? As Reformed Presbyterians, we're very good at up here. I know that, yes, I can say it back to you. Maybe I know a catechism. I can sprinkle a little quote from someone. But do I know it functionally in here? Does the way I act, do the words that come out of my mouth to the people closest to me show that I know that's true? Or do they show something else? Where do I need to apply the power of this king to my story, to the way I view my past and my brokenness? Let his grace speak over those things to you. No one is harder on you than you. Jesus has come to take that critic away. 
Where do you need to apply that this king comes for broken people like you and I, and it's okay to be broken? It is okay. Let me hear you say this in the Cambridge context. It is okay to be unexceptional. Hmm. I heard some PhD candidates in there just deflate. It is okay to be unexceptional. Because he, for most of his life, lived an unexceptional life as a blue-collar worker. And he did that, lived an unexceptional life, though he was God, because he loved you. Because it didn't matter to him what would get in the way, because he loved you. It didn't matter what he would lose because he loved you. Where do you need to apply that to your life? My friends, if you believe, apply what is already yours, that your past doesn't define you, that brokenness doesn't own you, where do you need to enjoy what already belongs to you? It's as if Christmas has come, the present is there with your name on it, and you just don't want to open it. It belongs to you. It's yours. No one else is going to take it from you. Open it, apply it, receive it. And if you don't believe, if you've walked away for a time, apply it now for the first time or for the first time in a long time. Claim him as your king who is willing to enter into the brokenness and give you grace. Because this king does not need to hide from your mess and you don't need to hide it from him. He came into the brokenness. He knows it so well. He's not going to be surprised. But there are ways in which we find ourselves continually surprised by the brokenness of others. And I want to encourage you to apply this king's goodness to them as well. Where do you need to see God's willingness to enter into someone else's brokenness in your life? Someone you'd rather write off. Someone whose storyline you think is too big to change or overcome or is even just personally too painful to you. It's not meant to be that God just enters into your story or to someone else's story, but for all people is his heart to enter into their stories. Where is he desiring to enter into a story that you have lost hope for? You have written that person off. All you see them as is a problem or a pain or a disappointment. Where do you need to see this chapter of their lives as no more exceptional to God than any other chapter? Where do you need to see that this part of their lives fits into those three sets of 14, that nothing changes what he can do and what he will do? Where do you need to see that, that they are not beyond saving and that is not beyond restoring? See the king who steps into their line, to their line. Open them being brought to restoration too because we all need that. And God has come to do exactly that. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a few moments to, to talk to God in our hearts about the things that we've just been discussing to maybe thank God that he does willingly step into your brokenness. Or maybe confess the ways that you would prefer to keep him at arm's length and not talk about all those things, or to not apply his grace to someone else. Ask God to maybe apply the power of his grace more to your heart, that you might open the present that's already yours. Let's pray.
God, we ask that you would hear these prayers and by your grace that you would answer. In your son's name we pray, amen.